be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations. Wow. I don't know who wrote that, but that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Wow. So today we are in Acts chapter 13. And um, this is really a major moment in the narrative of Luke, beginning, of course, in the first chapter of the gospel that bears his name, and continuing all the way through to the end of the book called the Acts of the Apostles. And here is a moment when the church has a fresh opportunity to define itself. The church which is both gathered and scattered because here we see the recounting of the narrative of a church that was gathered in Antioch. Antioch along with Jerusalem and Ephesus as we'll see later when we study the later chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, these three churches are the model churches for all Christians in all cultures in every time and for every situation. Antioch bears the marks of a great church, a church that's gathered through the harvest of souls first amongst the Gentiles. But it's also a church that intentionally scatters as well as gathers. And we, of course, at Apex, have sought to live out this calling of being a gathered and a scattered church Not so that some people gather on Sundays and some people are scattered in the house churches and households, but that all those who gather are also scattered into house churches and households. And all those who are scattered are gathered. So be sure to just register that, that this church along with the calling of all God's people down through all of the ages, is a church that is committed to the culture of gathering and scattering. And if you've got yourself trapped in one of those places and find yourself in the box of gathering and are unable as yet to understand what it means to be scattered with the mission of God among the people of God in the households and the house churches of Apex, then I'd encourage you to explore it. And if you have, through COVID and through the isolation and loneliness that has been created through this time of pandemic, have found yourself scattered and unable to gather, then I speak a word of liberation over you. Be released from the place of scattering and come to the place of gathering so that all of us can enjoy the continuum of the life of God found in both places. But I'm not gonna preach about that this week. I just thought I'd share it with you. Let's read from Acts chapter 13 verse one. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. 
The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. An intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for that was what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus and said, You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you will not be able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now today is a day of victory. It's a day when many of you are going to be released into a fresh experience of the victory that God has for you. If you're at home and you are seeking to engage with what it is that God is saying to you today, I'd encourage you uh, as I give instruction Uh, throughout the sermon, I'd encourage you to follow along closely. If you're here in the building, then, then draw near and attend carefully. Because today may well mark a moment in your life when things change for the better forever. So let's look at this remarkable church and this incredible story. And let's recognize, first of all, that this is a major milestone in the life of the church. When I say a major milestone, what I mean is simply this, that the church as presented to us in the Acts of the Apostles has from time to time responded or reacted to the things that are going on around them and in the circumstances they faced, they found themselves engaging in God's mission and sharing the witness that they were able to bear of Jesus. So, when the persecution that came up under Saul, who is now, of course, a saved Christian, when that persecution rose up, they were scattered to the four winds, and as they were scattered, they shared the faith, and other people came to know, even the Gentiles. But that's a reaction to something's happening. When Philip was in, was in Samaria and the Samaritans needed to know that God loved them just the same as he loved their Jewish friends down the road, not really friends but enemies, then Peter and John had to respond and react and go and pray for them and lay hands on them so that they might be filled with the Holy Spirit. All the way through the Acts of the Apostles, the church has been reacting to the Holy Spirit, but very few places do we see, and nowhere do we find 
the intentional prompting of the Holy Spirit without surrounding circumstances forcing their hand, do we find the church intentionally engaging in mission? Here is a milestone. This is the moment when all of you who have missional hearts can look and say, this is when it began. The intentional decision by the church to respond to the good news of Jesus and all that he achieved for us on the cross and all that he demonstrated in the resurrection and go and do something by sharing the good news and engaging in the mission of the kingdom. Now, when we look at this church and we go further than this simple milestone, we of course find ourselves engaging with the lives of two great exemplars, two great examples of the faith, Barnabas and Paul. The title of this sermon is Calling and Conflict. Barnabas will be our example of calling in this passage. Paul will be our example of how to engage in spiritual conflict and see victory at the other side. And those of you who are looking for that, then attend carefully when we get to that part. But look, let's just look at what it is that Barnabas is able to demonstrate to us and what it is that Barnabas is able to share with us. He's a great example of faith. What do we notice when we see these first few verses as the teachers and the prophets, people of black and white skin? Man who is called, who is called Niger, indicating that his skin is dark. A man from Cyrene, North Africa, and Barnabas himself, probably a man of dark complexion because he himself was probably originating from the place in Cyrene where that Jewish community was found. These are an amazing collection of the multicolored, multicultural background of the people of God that will prefigure the day when every tribe tongue and nation will worship at the throne of the Lamb. But do you notice that as they fast and they pray, and in other weeks we'll look at fasting and praying because it seems to be a cultural norm for the people of the Acts of the Apostles. As they're fasting and praying and the Holy Spirit prompts them to do something, their immediate response is to send. Now, I don't know whether they had any sense that Paul would write two-thirds of the New Testament. But he must have been a pretty impressive character. They all knew about the goodness and generosity of, of Barnabas because he had been lauded and, and heralded by, by many for those qualities in his life. And so, although I'm sure these other characters were remarkable in their own way, looking at Barnabas and Paul, you would not think that these are the best people to give away to the mission field. 
Surely we need them. But they give of their best. And why are they giving of their best? Because Barnabas, the man who was right there at the foundation of the planting of this church, gave them the model of how they should live. Remember that when Luke wrote these words, he did not write them with chapters and verses. And so this is how it reads in verse 25 of Acts chapter 12. It says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, a Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Barnabas and Paul, Saul at this stage, his name is just about to change. Barnabas and Paul have been on a mission of generosity. The prophet Agabus has told them of a famine that will sweep the world. And they know that the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem, the Christians in Israel, the followers of Jesus are going to be sorely pressed because already they've, they've been the recipients of terrible persecution. Already they have, been, they have been pushed to the margins of society. Already their lives are hanging by a thread. Their tenuous connection to the world of economic welfare has been severed. And so the church in Antioch gathers a great collection. And Paul and Barnabas take the collection in support of the poor and the hungry. It's generosity that's at the heart of the Antioch church. And that church, represented by Paul and Barnabas in their generosity, that church taking the model of Barnabas known for goodness and generosity, that church is the church that generously releases Paul and Barnabas their very best to the mission that God had for them. Now listen carefully, because this is not a judgment or a critique. It's simply an observation. I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been a Christian leader almost as long. I was converted at 16 and was called to seminary at at 18. I've been in this work, man and boy, for well over a generation. I've never, in all of the hundreds of churches, who knows how many hundreds of churches, 1,400 churches planted in Europe alone. Who knows how many hundreds of churches I've actually worked with face to face. I've never seen one church make a spiritual breakthrough without a culture of generosity. I've never seen one. I've never seen a church make a breakthrough without a spirit that recognizes that the grace of God has been so abundant that the grace of God is so unlimited, that the grace of God is so unparalleled that their only response is generosity. 
That culture of generosity is not a requirement, but a response. A response to an understanding of God's grace. If it's a duty, that's a good thing. But the good is often an enemy of the best. Giving's good. But the best is gracious generosity born of an understanding of what it is that God has given us. Leaders, church boards who count pennies and minutes are doing a good thing, but it's not the best thing. The best thing is not only to embrace but to establish a culture of generosity. And here, the model church in the New Testament is a church of generosity. And now listen more closely. Because Barnabas, of course, is the model. And where does he get, where does he get his model from? Well, of course, we know where he gets his model from because he's a follower of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. Look. Here in Matthew 10, verse seven, as he sends his first disciples on a mission. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Because freely have you received, now freely give. There's many dear people who've said to me over the years, I'd love to see more healing. I'd love to know that when I'm praying for the sick, I have confidence to see them healed. I'd love to be able to know that the authority that Jesus has given me is demonstrated in the, in the driving out of demons. I know that you look for spiritual breakthroughs. I've never seen an individual Christian make a sustained spiritual breakthrough without embracing generosity. Jesus says it. If you want to do these things, you do it from a heart. If you want to do these things, you don't do it out of duty, you do it from a heart. As you go, preach. The kingdom of God is near. As you go, heal the sick. As you go, cleanse the lepers. As you go, raise the dead. As you go, cast out demons. Because why? Because your life is undergirded with grace. And because your life is undergirded with grace, your lifestyle is one of generosity, of course. So why is it that you don't see the breakthrough that you look for? Is it because God doesn't want to give you it? Well, why would you be a special case? Is it because he's changed his attitude? Is it because somehow his nature has been altered in relation to you, not to everybody else? Do you think he doesn't like the sick anymore? 
Do you think he doesn't want to see the demonized delivered anymore? Do you think he doesn't want people saved anymore? He doesn't want to use you? He's, he's not looking for another instrument of grace? Do you think he's got enough already? Does the world demonstrate that there's enough there's enough people, there's, there's sufficient Christians doing the work of the kingdom to transform society. Is it already happening? And yet we long for these things without a realization of what it is that undergirds it. It's all a work of grace. And if it's a work of grace, it should be a culture of generosity. So please don't give out of duty when you know that you could give because it's the only response to the gracious goodness of a living God who gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. It won't happen without generosity. So here is a major moment. A major moment when the calling of Barnabas and Paul becomes definitive for all who are called into mission. Here is a major model. The Church of Antioch modeling itself on the life of Barnabas living a life of generosity and seeing the breakthroughs of the kingdom. But beyond this, of course, we have the example of Paul. Paul, at this stage, is still known to his friends as Saul. But of course, Jesus has told him on the road to Damascus that he will not only be the witness to the Gentile world, but he will stand and share the gospel with governors and kings. And by the end of the story, he will have shared with governors and kings. At the very end of the story of the Acts of the Apostles, he's on the threshold of sharing with Caesar himself. But this is the first moment when the gathered church of Antioch expressing the calling that is placed upon him to share the good news with the Gentiles sends out missionaries to the world and as Paul goes with Barnabas, still known as Saul, he meets the first governor and his name changes because the first believing governor is called Paul. Now, did Paul have that as one of his family names? Probably people had lots of names in those days. But what a day when Saul and Barnabas heard that the governor wanted to hear the good news. Imagine that. Imagine how Saul's heart beat within him he remembered the words of Jesus of course his name changed and of course the leadership of the team changed because the torch handed from Barnabas to Paul 
in this moment. Because Paul was not only an example of our calling, but became the exemplar of how to engage in spiritual conflict. Let's look at it. This is not so much the major moment or the major model, but the major matchup between Jesus and the devil. Elimus, a Semitic name meaning wizard, is perhaps the title of a man who functioned in the court of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus appears to be named in the histories of the time. The location where they were on the west coast of the island of Cyprus was certainly the administrative center for Roman, Roman rule across the island. And so here they're brought before him and the court wizard opposes them. And he calls himself the son of Jesus. Bar-Jesus is the Jewish name for the son of Jesus. He calls himself the son of Jesus, but Paul knows he's the child of the devil. You're not the son of Jesus. He would never act like you because you constantly think of ways of deceiving others. Like your master, you're committed to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10, verse 10. The devil's intentions are clear. To steal, to kill, to destroy. He wanted to steal away the opportunity for the gospel to be shared. He wanted to kill the faith, nascent and embryonic in the heart of the governor. He wanted to destroy the work of the kingdom on the island of Cyprus. So what does Paul do and how might we take his example? Last weekend, I was with um, the Discovery Bible community, meeting in a member of the church's backyard in this little kind of pagoda thing with mosquito nets to prevent the animals from eating me. And there we shared from the scriptures we weren't allowed to bring any information that wasn't in the text. It wasn't a matter of an expert theologian training people in the scriptures. It was a matter of the Holy Spirit speaking to each person and them sharing what it was that God said to them. And the collective insight of the group was this. Some already believers, some emerging into faith, some in the margins where they're still working out where they stand. But the collective understanding from this passage was this. You can either resist or collude. Your life can be marked by a sense of resistance 
or compliance? Do you listen to the words of the enemy? Um, have you become compliant to his desires? Or is there a resistance in you, a posture within you, a stance within you that may not be always manifest in behavior but is able to be called upon at any moment so that your orientation is revealed by the demonstration of your life. You see, if you want to see the demonstration of the kingdom being, being advanced and the kingdom of darkness being pushed back, that demonstration comes from an inward orientation. Now that's very important, so say to your neighbor, the demonstration comes from the orientation. Say it to your neighbor right now. See, Paul wasn't making it up right there and then. He wasn't looking around thinking, well, what shall I do now? He knew what to do next because the orientation was already set and so the demonstration was able to flow. And what do we learn from Paul about this major moment of conflict? Because if they had failed here, this would have been the first obstacle in the intentional mission of God through the church of Jesus Christ. If they had failed at this moment, who knows what would have happened? Maybe they'd still be circling their wagons in Cyprus today. But there was an inner orientation that led to an external demonstration of the kingdom. And Paul tells us this, it all flows from weakness. All that strength, all that power, all that capacity, all that breakthrough comes from an inward breaking when you realize that you are incapable of doing the merest thing for God. Because you see, the grace that causes you to become generous is the grace that breaks your heart to realize that if you need that much grace, then you can't do anything. There's nothing you can do to change the world. You may desire it, you may have idealistic visions to see it, but you won't in your own strength. It's only God who can change the world that he made fundamentally. And so God, working through the conduit of Paul's weakness, I'll boast in my weakness because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Three times I said to the Lord, take this away from me. But he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So if you're weak today, celebrate. If you're incapable today, rejoice. 
If you can't do it today, give God praise. Because here is the starting point of breakthrough. Breakthrough begins with the breakdown within that tells us that we're weak in the face of an enemy, too wily, too capable, too crafty for any of us to be able to defeat him. But we can win. And we win by taking the example of Paul who in his weakness became strong through the fault lines in his personality, through the brokenness that he examined in his heart daily, through the inward examination and understanding that he was unable to do the things that God gave him to do and yet God still wanted to do them through him. Through that revelation, he changed the world. And he's just like you. And he's just like me. And so confronted by the wizard called Elamus, he knew what it was that he should say. And he knew where it was that he should begin. He needed to go back to the testimony of his own story. Where was it that God first demonstrated grace? Well, it was when he was in headlong pursuit of Christians to drag them in chains back to Jerusalem where they would be convicted and killed for following Jesus. In that moment of rebellion, in that headlong pursuit of hell, Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and gave him grace and gave him a calling, and gave him a meaning, and struck him blind, so that he'd realize how grace works. It works in the realization that you are completely incapable. You can't see anything or do anything. You need to be led by the hand of Jesus. And as you're led by the hand of Jesus, so you become the demonstration of the arm of God. Do you want to defeat the devil? It's a very straightforward thing. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Paul, in his weakness, knows he can't win. In his weakness, he reaches for the strength of God. When he reaches for the strength of God, he finds the grace of God. In the grace of God, he's reminded of the transforming moment on the road to Damascus, and he says to Elamus, you're gonna go blind. Isn't that interesting? You're gonna go blind just like I did. And for a little while, just like me, you're going you're gonna to grope around looking for other people's hands to, to lead you. Because you need to know that you can't do anything. That you are insignificant in the face of Almighty God. The blindness 
was not simply a judgment, but an offer of salvation, just as it was for Paul. And what else does Paul tell us? He tells us that if you want to understand the means by which you can resist, the means by which you can be effective, then understand this. It's about standing and not running. You don't run into the battle and you don't run away from it. You simply stand. And how do you stand? Bible scholars, Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following. How do you stand? You stand with truth. The word aletheia means reality. The reality of Jesus holding you in like a great belt and buckler. Truth is surrounding you and bounding you. You stand with the righteousness of God upon you. You have a right relationship with God and it covers your breast and your heart. And though your heart be faint in the face of an enemy, God's righteous presence will protect you. So you have truth like a belt, righteousness, the right relationship with God like a breastplate. You have a shield that is faith, faith that comes by hearing the word of God. You have salvation upon your head, clarifying your heart and mind, guarding your thoughts. You have a sword, the word of God, which the Spirit speaks through you as the only offensive weapon that you carry and you pray on every occasion. And when you've done all, and when you've done all, and when everything has gone down, and when everything has happened, you stand. The Roman legions had dominated the world the reason they dominated the world was because when they gained a foothold on a battlefield, they were immovable. They simply took up a stand in great squares of infantry soldiers. Great phalanxes of spears would protrude from those, from those, those stands of infantry. Once they took a position on the field, you had to kill all of them or you would lose. Everybody in the world knew it, that the great strategy of the greatest military power the world had ever seen, the great strategy was simply this, stand still and you'll win. Stand with truth, stand with righteousness, stand with faith, stand with salvation, stand in the peace that comes from the readiness of the gospel. 
Stand with a sword in your hand that the Spirit places there. Stand with the communication to the commander that is prayer on every occasion. Stand. You see, you will face conflict probably every day. And the reason that most Christians don't win is they don't know that strength comes from weakness and victory comes from standing. He can't move you. The enemy can't move you any more than you can move Jesus. I woke up this morning and um, I heard these words. I mean, these were literally the words I got. Sally will tell you. I picked up my phone and started tapping away like at 6.30. When we're afraid, we're not any less secure because our security does not depend on us. When we're diminished by the world, we don't have any less authority because our authority does not depend on us. When we're overwhelmed by circumstances, we don't have any less capacity because our power does not depend on us. So let's try it. When we're afraid, when you're afraid, are you any less secure? When you're afraid, are you any less secure? When you're afraid, are you any less secure? The answer is no, because your security doesn't depend on you. Who does it depend on? Who does it depend on? You can call him the Lord, you can call him God, you can call him Jesus. I'll just suggest Jesus for the time being. On whom does your security depend? So let me ask you again. When you're afraid, are you any less secure? Who do you depend on for your security? I think you're getting it. Let me try it one more time. When you're afraid, are you any less secure? Who gives you your security? Let's try this other one. When you're diminished, you know what that feels like, don't you? When you're diminished by the world around you, do you have any less authority? On whom does your authority depend? I think you're getting it. It's kind of feeling good in here, isn't it? When you're diminished by the world around you, 
Do you have any less authority? On whom do you depend for your authority? When you're overwhelmed by circumstances, do you have any less power? Who gives you your power? Stand together with me. Stand together with me. Our victory is in the room. Because you defeat the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of what? And what have we just been giving a word of? Testimony, three people in the room understand that what we just did was defeat the enemy. The enemy is bloodied and broken right now. The enemy right now is fleeing from you. The enemy right now is telling all of his bodies to get out of your house. Your enemy right now is terrified that you're going to leave this room actually believing this. So when you're afraid, are you any less secure? Who gives you your security? When you're diminished by the world around you, do you have any less authority? Who gives you your authority? When you're overwhelmed by circumstances, do you have any less power of the resurrection that dwells in your heart? Who gives you power? Bless you. Bless you.